Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So I said, well, I, get, I better not get arrested. So I go in, I fill out the police report. And when I fill out the police report, the guy asked me to step into the hallway and wait for him. When I'm in the hallway, my Secret Service poster was on the wall in the hallway. Like, there's a bunch of other posters, but mine was there. Anyway, he ends up coming out. He's like, you ready to go? I was like, holy shit. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Matthew Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time. Playboy magazine even proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud and he was the best. You're about to hear how he did it and how he managed to stay on the run for three years while topping the US Secret Service's most wanted list. But before we get started, you still have a chance to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance with AG1 by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is also giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase of AG1. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. One scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, superfoods, and probiotics which are designed to efficiently absorb into your body. And it's lifestyle-friendly as well, whether you're on keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it's still good to go. It's literally one thing to take with all the best stuff inside. Get involved, support your health, and this podcast. Visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy, and I'll put the link in the synopsis to this episode as well. Hope you enjoy the episode. Matthew Cox, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. Appreciate you having me. No worries. Well, let's start your story from how you got into the mortgage industry. Well, because I'm, you know, I'm extremely artistic. So I, you know, I painted and drew. And so I ended up getting a degree. I went to college for art. And then I got out of, you know, got out of college and couldn't really do anything. You know, there was, I couldn't make a living as an artist. You know, I started working construction and then I had a girlfriend that uh, she was working for uh, what's called a subprime lender. You know, everybody's heard of the subprime you know, crisis or the financial crisis of 2008. Well, mm. this was a subprime lender and I started, she was working for this company called Eagle Lending and I ended up getting a job working for Eagle Lending because she was like, you know, you should do this. You'd be perfect at, you'd be great at it. You're wasting your time in construction. So I ended up doing that. I got my license in Florida. You have to be licensed as a mortgage broker. Went and got my license as a mortgage broker and started working there. And I was, you know, I was good at it. I was, I'm personable and took to it very quickly and actually, and then started committing fraud very quickly. Can you remember how quickly that happened? Can you remember the first bit it was, of- it was my first loan? Really? <laughs> my very first loan. I, I walked in like I, I had plenty of customers because I, I was it was easy for me to figure out how to qualify them and what program they worked in. And I had no problem talking to anybody like I talked to everybody I talked to. I'm handing them a business card. I'm calling people on the phone like I don't have a problem calling you on the phone. A lot of people are just terrified to, to even have to even make that phone call. They're afraid that people will yell at them or hang up on them or, you know, what if they yell at me? I mean, what do I care? I don't care if you yell at me or not. I don't know you. So, you know, they hang up on you. That's fine. It's not personal. So anyway, I, I, uh, first loan I walked in with it, she looked at it and I remember she went through the whole loan and took one piece of paper out of the file, put it to the side. And I was like, what's, what's that? And she goes, you know, you didn't look at this, did you? And I was like, no, what is it? And she goes, it's a verification of rent. I, you have to verify that the person's been paying their rent. And we, I sent off the paperwork that the loan processor mailed off to this woman's, um, her apartment complex, but she'd been 30 days late on her rent. I never looked at that. Like I never verified it or looked at it. And, and she was like, yeah, it says here she was 30 days late on her rent, you know, eight months ago or something. And she's like, your, your deals, it's dead. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was super upset about it. And she said, uh, I said, well, what do I do? And she goes, I would white it out and make a copy of it, stick it in the file. And underwriting is never going to catch it. And I was like, well, well, that's fraud, isn't it? I can go to jail. And she's, you're not going to go to jail. They're not going to catch it. And even if they catch it, 
you can blame it on the on your borrower or she is even if they think you're involved they'll just fire you okay i mean i i, I just trusted her so i made the copy stuck it in the file you know was very worried about it for about three days and underwriter underwriting came back in three days and said your loan is clear to close so it's it's done like that they said you're approved and the next day i scheduled a closing the borrower goes to closing the seller goes to closing and the lender funds the loan. They send the money to the title company, right? It's called the title company or a lawyer, or a lot of times it's a real estate attorney who does the closings. They send the money, they sign their paperwork. She's got the keys to the house. She now, it's over, it's done, it's over. She's got the house, she owns the house. The loan has been funded. I get a check, I'm thrilled. So you would just start doing this wherever you had the opportunity after that. Oh, listen, the next person that came in, they made like, let's say $62,000. So they couldn't qualify for the loan. If they'd made 69,000, they would qualify. So I changed the two to a nine and I made all the corresponding numbers look correct. Because, you know, in in the US, if you make $70,000, you pay this much in taxes, this much for social security, this much for, you know, so I just changed all those numbers to make sure they all correspond. I sent in the file. Now the guy makes $69,000, loans approved. Oh my God. Because even if underwriting calls his lender, or sorry, his job, all they're really going to ask is how long has he worked there? Does mm-hmm. he work there now? You know, like how much, even if they said, how much does he make? Most, most employers are going to say, yeah, I can't tell you that. They'll say, look, you have to get approval. You have to send in a form. He has to sign off saying he allows me to tell you what he but they don't even ask anyway. Why would you ask what he earns when I told you this is the employer and I showed you his W-2? Now, the W-2 is fake. What's the W-2? The W-2 shows how much they... How much they were paid the prior year. Right. You know, I make that made that change. That guy got a loan. Next person walked in. If they had a problem, I changed whatever documents needed to be changed. And then I started figuring out certain things that I could do that underwriting couldn't check on. So i give you an example. Um... Let's say you make enough money and you've got a child. So if I said your child received what's called social security disability, underwriting, you, it's a form letter that just says this is what the child receives. And you can include that at, on your income. But underwriting cannot call social security. They will not give you any, any information. So I just said, hey, they, he makes an extra $1,100 a month for his child who's on disability. Here's the form letter. They go, okay, click, done, loans closed. Ready to close. So, I mean, I, I just got to the point where I was making fake banks to ver- verify people's down payments. Like I would make a fake bank. I'd go online and create a fake bank with different pages and everything. I'd create bank statements and everything for the bank. You could call the bank and um, they, somebody would answer. Or if they didn't answer, then it would go to a voicemail that said that they were experiencing high, high caller volume, leave a message and they would call you. Someone would call you back. Yeah, you made a, a website and everything for a bank at one point, didn't you? Yeah, I, I've, I've had about three banks. <laughs> three banks. They're just websites, but yeah. Oh so it, you know, so that that worked out. You know, all of that worked out for a while. You know, and then I ended up getting in trouble for bank fraud. You know, within a few years, uh, I ended up. It's complicated. I'm, I won't go into how complicated it take 20 minutes to explain it. But the point is, is that somebody I knew got in trouble and I had closed several loans at their, at their mortgage brokerage firm. And as a result of that, they cooperated with the FBI and they wore a wire on me and got me to admit that I was committing fraud. Really? That's how you got caught? Right. Right. Well, the first time. Right, the first time. So, yeah. So let's let's just let's just back it up a little bit because, like, uh, and we'll work our way through it. Because after a year of working in this uh, as a mortgage broker, you started your own firm, didn't you? Oh yeah. And how much were you guys breaking the rules in that? Like, was everyone at your at your, at your firm on the fraud? Um. No. Well. No. Yes. Yes. But they weren't all committing. Every loan wasn't fraud. Let's say sixty percent or seventy percent. I don't know. At some points, I think I may have said it was maybe 80%, but I, I think it was more like 50 or 60% of those loans had some type of fraud in them. And how much money was that? So I would say probably $40 million over the course of a year or two. But if I were to say in the, in its entirety, it was probably double that. Wow. But I, I, I just usually go with the figure that the, the FBI said $40 million. 
it's probably safer, isn't it? Yeah, and they they estimated forty to fifty million dollars. So I go with I typically say forty million. But you know the problem with that is that that doesn't mean that those loans were bad or, or that they went bad. So let's say you buy a house for half a million dollars, and I get you a loan for half a million dollars, but you didn't really qualify for that loan. So you don't technically you shouldn't have gotten the loan. But when your first mortgage payment comes due, you pay it, and your second one you pay it, and you continue to pay. Let's say you never ever don't make a payment and you pay off the loan and you own the house free and clear. You don't have a loan on the house. You own it now. The FBI would say that I committed mortgage fraud. Why? Because you got him a half a million dollar loan. What I'm saying is he made all the payments. They're saying he should have never gotten the loan. So they're saying that's half a million dollars in mortgage fraud. I'm saying he made the payments. Like it's okay. You know, is it fraud? Yeah. So they're saying, you know, it's between whatever, 40, you know, 40 or 50 million dollars. I'm saying those loans didn't go bad. Like they can't show me where where those loans went bad. Did many of them go bad? Do you know? Or do you have any idea? Or is it? Some of them went bad. Some of them went bad. But a lot of them didn't. And I didn't do all those loans anyway. My brokers were doing loans. Like they did loans. I mean, they would come to me. I had about 12 guys working for me, cranking out. Each guy was probably cranking out a couple million dollars in loans every month. Some of those guys never even came in the office. I don't know what they were closing. I was just getting checks from them. Some of them were coming in, were there all the time, and I was creating documents for them, and we were closing loans that never should have closed. And I'm sure some of those went under and were never detected. So I don't know what that amount is exactly. And you guys were constantly getting caught, though, but no one really cared. No, because I would pay them back. You know, like a a bank would, or I would get caught by a bank, for, and they'd catch some forgery and they'd say, hey, and then they'd go and they'd check my, our other loans and they'd say, hey, look, so you've got a couple million dollars worth of bad loans here. But I don't, I don't have $2 million. I can't pay you back. And all those people are making payments anyway. So they would say, you know, just promise us that if any of these come back on us, they get foreclosed on and we become responsible for them. We can go to you and you'll help us resell the house. And I would say, yeah, no problem. You acquired a massive property portfolio. Was it like 55 houses before you were 30? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, we had 54, my ex-wife and I had 54 rental properties in, in a year. In a year, we closed on those, all of them. All fraud. All fraud. How much all money would that have been? Like, How much money do you think you acquired in, in houses? We bought a whole complex, which was 20 units. It was five buildings. We closed on all those like the same day. I would say, I mean, it was about, it was, it was over a million dollars worth of mortgages. And then we were buying them in bad areas. We didn't put down, I remember we didn't put down any money on this. We were actually going to closings and getting money back. How? So if you're selling me your house for $100,000, technically I'm supposed to put down, let's say $20,000. So the bank's going to lend me $80,000. I would say I'm buying the house for $140,000. I would bring the deposit the down payment on that, right? So the down payment on $140,000 is $28,000. So if you minus the 28,000, so the bank's going to lend $112,000 on the property. I bring 28,000, but I would write an invoice to a general contractor that had never done any work on the property. And I'd get back a check for, let's say $40,000. So I get my $28,000 back plus $12,000. You get your $100,000 and you go away. I've now got over 100% financing and I have $12,000 in my pocket to maybe do some repairs, put a new roof on, maybe paint the building. And then I rent it out for a little bit more money and we just keep going. We were doing that all the time. Jesus. Every property. There were some properties we were walking away with $20,000, $30,000. And so were you saying that the house was worth more than what it was as well to the bank? Right. And I've got the, and I would get an appraiser to give me an appraisal that said it was worth 140000 The FBI, they came after you um, around this point, and your lawyer gave you some advice to just to cooperate. But instead, right. you just went full fraud, creating fake identities, didn't you? So there's something in the US where if you haven't done too much, let's put it this way let's say you've done some fraud but nobody really got hurt. A lot of times they'll let you pay the money back or cooperate and they won't even indict you. Like they won't even charge you. They'll say, cooperate with us, pay the money back. It's called a, a pretrial intervention. And so you can get out of it. And he told me I, if I cooperated that he could get them to do that. 
And I, you know, at the point, that point, I, I just thought I was some kind of a fucking gangster. I wasn't going to do that. I'm not going to cooperate against these guys. I know these guys. And, you know, I wasn't really facing any time. And I thought I was a stand-up guy. Like a proper mobster. Exactly. I'm a tough guy. I'm not going to do, you know, which, by the way, you know, it's a complete lie. Like, I'm fooling myself. You know, that nobody's going to cooperate against me. And I wouldn't cooperate against anybody. And the truth is, I wasn't really looking at any time. So I didn't do it. I just took the fraud charge, you know, like an idiot. If I had the chance to do it now again, I would have given up every single one of those guys. Every single one of them. Because they all turned on me. At that time, I thought... I had that bullshit delusion that people don't cooperate against each other. The truth is everybody cuts each other's throats. Very seldomly does that ever, do people ever not cooperate. And you get done by the FBI, right? End up getting on, getting probation. So then you start making fake identities. Can you explain like the straw man scheme? Because you had a guy originally, Mr. Green, wasn't it? So I'd seen the, the movie Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino and... All the bank robbers had been given fake names. They were colors, weren't they? Right. Mr. Pink, Mr. Green, Mr. Red, Mr. Blue, Mr. Silver, uh, you know, Mr. White. So what I did was I figured out how to make what what are called synthetic identities. You know, they're phantom borrowers. I start by just getting a social security number for a child and playing with the numbers. until I realize these numbers haven't been issued. And I start going on to the credit bureau, which I had access to the credit bureau. I could pull credit. So I start naming people like, you know, James Red, and I use a child social security number. It may have never been issued or it's been issued to a two-year-old child, so he's not using it. I would then get a couple credit cards in that child's name. And so now when you go to pull, when a lender goes to pull that child's credit or my my guy, James Red, who they think he's a 30-year-old man, he has perfect credit. He has three credit cards and he's got a 700 credit score because, of course, I get the credit cards in his name and I make the payments. So after a few, several months, he has 700 credit scores. He looks perfect. He doesn't exist. And then you can go and borrow money. Yeah, I, I, what I did was I eventually figured out how to make fake IDs. So I'd make, a, I'd make up a name, let's say William Blue. So eventually I figure out how to go to Social Security and get them to issue Social Security numbers to children that don't exist. I have a William Blue with a Social Security number, and then I'm ordering three secured credit cards in his name, and I'm making the payments, and then he's got 700 credit scores. So then I would go and I would buy houses in his name, but I would record the value of the homes at a much higher price. So if I buy the house for 50000 but I record the sale of that home for 200000 and I record the sale of other homes in the area for 200000 then the whole market goes up. So when the bank sends out an appraiser, let's say, or looks at the house, they think it's worth 200000 but really it's only worth forty or fifty grand. So then I'd borrow on that house, I'd borrow, let's say, $160,000. I only bought the house for fifty, So I just made $110,000. Shit. Right. So I just, and each one of these guys would buy five or six houses. They borrow about a million dollars on multiple houses. And then I would just make the payments, two or three payments. And then I'd let all the houses go into foreclosure. The banks would then come in. Well, when they foreclose on the property, if they repull his credit, they see he's got a bunch of credit cards. They see he's got a few mortgages that are behind. They're all behind. They would start calling. They'd mail some letters. And then I'd have his sister, which also doesn't exist, obviously. These are fake people. I would then have his sister write a letter and I'd include a copy of a newspaper article about like a 20, po- 20 car pile up where somebody was life flighted to the hospital and they were currently in a coma. And I put my guy's name in the article and I'd send the article to the lenders saying, look from with the letter from his sister saying, listen, my brother was, you know, I received your letter. My brother's currently in a coma. He was in a 20 car pile up. Here's a copy of the newspaper article. The, The doctor said that he'll probably never come out of the coma, but even if he does, he'll never work again. So you might as well go ahead and just take the house. And they would foreclose on the house and that was it. All, what they needed was an explanation. They didn't know there was fraud, but I wanted to give them a reason why he stopped paying. And a car accident is a good reason. See, if he had died, if he died, they could find out he died. There's a, a death certificate. But if he's in the hospital and he's not returning phone calls, it's because he can't. That's it. And so they would foreclose on the property, take the property back, and then... Even then, they 
they, if they did another appraisal, there were still comparable sales everywhere in the neighborhood. Each one of these guys is buying in the same neighborhood. So you were inflating all the houses in the neighborhood? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A matter of fact, Forbes magazine wrote an article where they said that the zip code where I was doing this was one of the top 20 fastest growing zip codes in the nation after I'd been doing it about a year and a half. <laughs> what? So you're looking at like the, the median house price was like 50 grand, wasn't it? And you took yeah, it up. Like, this yeah. is early 2000s. And you took it up to like 250, quarter of a million. Yeah, you know what they said? It was They said the median house price in that neighborhood was like 65 or 70,000. I don't know how. <laughs> those houses were horrible and i brought it up to like 250 i was buying houses in that neighborhood for 40,000 50,000 jesus they need work wasn't there a, a time where you were um, you, one of your straw men i think it was mr green had to you, you got busted cuz you you you're supposed to go and get him or sp- supposed to go and see um uh, see him or communicate with him but you were busted sitting in the car park by the lady in the office can you does that story ring a bell? Yeah. So what would happen is because I had been in the industry, right? I knew a bunch of people. Like I knew a lot of people at title companies. Well, technically, if you buy a house in the United States, you have to show up. You have to show them your driver's license. And when you show them their, your driver's license, and you have to be the one to sign all the paper. I mean, you're borrowing a couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, of course, there are these people don't exist. What I would do is I would drive by and pick up the closing file and all the documents, and I would just go sit in my car. So one time there was a chick named Amy Early. She worked at a title company, and I walked in, and I was like, hey. And she said, hey, what? so he's not going to be able to – Mr. Green's not going to be able to be here. And I was like, no, he can't be here. He's late. Can you do you mind? And she said, no problem. She gave me the documents, and I took them, and I walked outside. I walked out in the parking lot, which was around the building. So it's not like it was in front. It was around the whole building. Right. So you thought you were out the back in the clear. Yeah. I walk around the whole building. I get in my car and I sit there and I listen to the radio and I, I sign the documents. I made a few phone calls. I waited about an hour or so. And then I walked back in and I walked in and I asked for Amy and she came and she walked in and she said, uh, hey, I said, hey, what's going on? She said, that was quick. I said, oh, yeah, he met me halfway. You know, the Starbucks, no problem. She said, oh, okay, that's good. And I remember I said, yeah, I got his, <laughs> I showed her the draw. I said, yeah, I got a copy of his driver's license and everything. She said, that's nice. I like the way you put that right on top. And I was like, yeah. She was just acting weird. She said, have I ever shown you my office? And I went, no. She said, come here. So I walk in the back, walk into her office, and sitting right outside of her window is my, my Audi. <laughs> and she said, you've been sitting in your car for an hour. She said, you made some calls, signed some packages. She said, you listen to the radio. She said, but you never once drove anywhere to have this guy sign anything. You haven't gone anywhere. I was like, oh shit. And I was like, listen, you don't understand. <laughs> I said, listen, I said, I have, I have a power of attorney. This guy's out of the country. What? Like he's gone. Like, I forget what I said. I said, he's gone. Like, he gave me a power of attorney, but the lender won't let me use a power of attorney. So I signed for him. And she goes, listen, Matt, I, I believe you, but I can't notarize this unless I talk to this guy. Like she really should have just said no. But she said, let me talk. I, I got to talk to this guy. And she picked up the phone and she tried to call him. She didn't get him, obviously, because I had a cell phone for this guy. And it was like sitting in my it was like sitting in my car or sitting in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> so it rings and rings. And it goes to voicemail and she left a message. And I was like, she's like, look, I can't let you leave with the checks without this talking to this guy. And I went, oh, she goes, I'll notarize it, but I have to talk to him. So I went, oh, okay, hold on. Well, let me call him again. And so I pick up my phone. I go, what's the number? And as she's telling me the phone number, I'm punching in the phone number to another broker, like one of my business partners. And he answers the phone. And he goes, yeah, what's up? And I said, hey, hi, Mr. Green. How are you doing? And he goes, oh, God. He goes, what am I supposed to be, Mr. Green? I said, that's right. I'm at the closing right now. I said, I just signed all your paperwork. I said, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here with Amy early. And she said she'll notarize it, but she needs to talk to you to make sure it's okay that I signed for you. He's oh Christ. He goes, okay, so I'm supposed to be Mr. Green. I said, yeah. She, he goes, all right, put her on. I give her the phone. She says, hi, Mr. Green. This is Amy. 
just want to make sure you're the one that actually signed all the, or that Mr. Cox is allowed to sign for you and that, you know, he's signing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. He said, it's no problem. You know, I can't be there. And she said, okay, I just needed to check. He was okay. Thank you so much. And she was okay. Hung up the phone, notarized all the documents, gave me like a hundred thousand dollars worth of checks. And I got to leave. What, why didn't she ask him for any like birthday or any details like that? I have no idea because first of all, she trusted me. Right. Okay. You, you the, knew her. She knew you. Right. right. And the second thing is, listen, if she had, he didn't know anything. He couldn't tell you the guy's date of birth. He couldn't tell you his full name. You must have been sweating bullets. I was terrified. Listen, you know how many times I've gone into a bank and had them like pick up the ID and look at the ID really closely. And I mean, I'm like, oh my God. I even get nervous sometimes when I'm showing my own passport. I'm like, oh, oh, here we go. I'm like being real polite to the person at customs or whatever. I can't imagine oh. if you were in your situation knowing that if you got busted. I've had Jesus. I've had two dozen passports, two dozen passports issued. I've had 27 driver's licenses issued by All state. different people? All different people. All different. At what point do you does it fall to shit and you have to go on the run? At what point are you going, I've got to... I, that they they know exactly who Matthew Cox is. I've got a I've got a split. I had a friend who was running a real estate scam um, similar to mine in Orlando, and I had a, a girl that I was dating named Allison Arnold, and she was also we were running. I was helping her run a scam, so I'm helping them both kind of run a scam. She ended up going in to buy a piece of property to sign a documents. For a, a loan, the person said she did not look like the picture on her driver's license. That was completely untrue. It was actually her. She just changed her hair. We had an, a name of a girl that was a, a Spanish girl. So she was like Puerto Rican. And so Allison had dyed her hair black. And that was the picture on her driver's license. But when she went into it for the closing, she dyed it blonde. Uh-huh. And so at the, the title person was like, oh, this person doesn't look like this isn't you. But it was her. <laughs> It was her. That's so it was like that was something that was right. It was like what the, you know she because even when she did it, I yelled at her for dyeing her hair, and she's like, "What does it matter? It's still me." Yeah, the one thing like, yeah. that was actually true about the whole thing. You get exactly. That's what they stopped. Like they didn't stop because of anything that was wrong with the loan. Just happened to be this woman at the title company thought, ah, she didn't look like her picture. And so as a result of that, she started making phone calls and she eventually figured out that there was something wrong, that this was an, a stolen identity. It, it just felt a shit. So they found out that there were multiple mortgages on that property. And so Allison, when she gave my buddy in Orlando the check to be deposited into one of his bank accounts, they put a flag on the check. So the local authorities were notified. And when he went in to the bank, they arrested him. He immediately cooperated and said that I was running a scam. There was a task force that was put together, a police task force. It was like a big collaboration by law enforcement to catch you. Exactly. So they have put together like a, you know, a group team, a a task force. They investigate it for several months. And then at some point they leaked it to the newspaper. Like they knew I was involved, but I hadn't done anything. Like I I haven't gone into the bank. I'm moving around paperwork, but I haven't got it anything. They don't have anything that proves it's me really. They leak it to the newspaper and I start getting this guy from the uh, St. Petersburg Times starts making phone calls and asking like, hey, asking people, do you know this guy, James Red? Do you know this guy, Michael White? Do you know this guy, Lee Black? Like, and then they would say, oh, no. I, and they, he'd go, okay, because he doesn't even exist. But you sold him a house. Or you did a loan for him. Or you were the broker on this loan. Or you did a closing for him that says that you saw, saw him sign the papers, but I know he doesn't exist. Who came in and signed these documents? So anyway, people are calling me saying, listen, the local police are serving subpoenas. They're asking for your paperwork. A newspaper reporter has called us three times. Something's wrong. So I know things are going wrong. And I, the, my buddy in Orlando also, you know, he got arrested, but I got him out on bond. And I got him an attorney. And I, I didn't know for sure he was – I didn't think he was cooperating with the authorities, but he was. And so one day a friend of mine who's a sheriff's deputy who knew I was committing fraud, he came in and told me that the, there was a task force that had been put together – And they were investigating me and it had been given to the FBI and the FBI was going to come and arrest me. It's a good heads up. 
Yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. He gave me he gave me a few. That was I had a few days. I got a bunch of money out of the bank, about eighty thousand dollars, because the bank was only open for one day. This was he told me on like a Thursday at like four o'clock. So I had like the next day I got out like eighty thousand dollars, which was the most I could get out in a day. And I ran up all my credit cards and I went on the run. I just Temple University is ranked among the top fifty public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. Left, you know, I didn't want to go to prison and I knew for sure I'm going to prison now. So I stole $11.5 million on probation. That's a problem. I'm definitely going to prison. Yeah, you're definitely going to prison. What was the plan? Where are you going to run to? There's no plan. Have you ever seen the um, Batman where the Joker says, do I look like a guy with a plan? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a dog chasing a, chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. So, yeah, my plan was to not get caught. You know, my plan was like basically to go on the run, get three or four million dollars, create a new identity and just live the rest of my life. You know, the problem is that it just didn't work out that way. I, I don't have much money. Eighty thousand dollars was not enough to live on. Me and this girl I'm with, we rent a, uh, a house. I satisfy the loan. I, I learned how to satisfy the loans on houses. So if Bank of America lent you money on your house, they put a lien on the house in public records. Well, I, I figured out how to go into public records and satisfy that loan. So it looks like there's no loan on the house. So I go in, I rent a house from this guy. I then create a fake ID in his name. I open up several bank accounts. I satisfy the loan on his house. I call several they're called hard money lenders. These are just private people that lend you money. They come out to the house, they look at it, and I convince three people to lend me $150,000 on the house at the same time. So each one is lending me 150, but they don't if you're lending me the 150, you don't know that the other guys lending me 150 also. So I borrow all that money within a day of each other. The closings are within a day or two. And so we pull that money out and then we leave and then we go to um Charlotte and we rent a place and we buy some vehicles. And About this time, you, the, the papers are, are blasting all sorts of headlines about you being like the, the Bonnie and Clyde of mortgage fraud and all sorts, aren't they? Yeah, they're going nuts. They were going crazy. And, and there was, um, you know, suddenly it just became a big deal, a very big deal. By that point, I'd figured out how to steal people's identities. I was able to go into the local driver's license bureaus and get them to give me a driver's license in someone's name. I'd also figured out how to get social security to issue me social security numbers to people that don't exist. And I started surveying homeless people to get their information. And so I was able to go in and get driver's licenses and passports in their names. You acquired the identity of a male prostitute, didn't you? Oh yeah, Gary Sullivan. So I went to Las Vegas. I was surveying homeless people and I saw a couple of guys sitting on a bench and the one guy came up to me and I said, hey, I'm taking surveys. And I would tell them I was taking surveys for the Salvation Army. You know, they'd say, oh, I'm not interested. And I'd say, well, it's, it's a survey to determine where we place our next homeless facility, and it pays $20 cash right now. Oh, yeah? I go, yeah, right. You're going to give me cap, 20 bucks right now, right now. Okay. they give me their name, date of birth, social security number, all their information. And then I would go online, and I would order a copy of their driving record, their birth certificate, social security card. I'd register to vote in their name, and then I would get a – I'd make a fake lease in their name and I'd go into a, a DMV, a driver's license, you know, the bureau where you, they issue driver's licenses in each state. I'd go into a state where they'd never had one issued and I'd give them my information and say, I just moved here from Nevada or wherever, and they would give me an ID. So this one guy I go up to, his name's Gary Sullivan. And I'd done this, listen, I did it 50, 100 times. And I go up to this guy and he walks up to me. His name's Gary Sullivan. I said, hey, and I tell him the same story. And he, as he's talking to me, I, one of the questions I would ask is, are you, have you ever been arrested for, um, uh, ever been arrested? Do you have a felony? And he said, well, I've been arrested a few times, but I don't, I've never had a felony. He goes, I, and I, oh, what were you arrested for? And he'd say, he goes, prostitution. And I thought it's weird because like, I always thought males got solicitation. Women were charged with prostitution. I went, you mean solicitation? He goes, no, I, I was offering to blow guys for 20 bucks a pop. And I offered to blow a police officer for $20. And I was like, oh, okay, you're a male prostitute. He goes, yeah. I said, oh, okay. So I write down, okay, no problem. And then I, I leave 
and I go to South Carolina. This was in Nevada, which is where Las Vegas is. So I go to South Carolina and I get an, an ID in his name. I order all of his documents. I go there. I then go and I buy two properties in South Carolina in his name. He has no credit. He actually has bad credit. I ended up paying off like $20,000 worth of medical collections that he had just to clean the credit up. So I buy two houses and I satisfy the loans on those houses. And then I turn around and I go and I borrow $1.3 million on those properties. So then I'm pulling money out of, I, I then take that money and I deposit it into about six or seven different banks in different, in my name and different names and several corporations. Like I was laundering, you have to launder the money. And then one day I walk into the bank and I'm waiting for them to give me like eight grand or something. I forget what the amount was. And a sheriff, two sheriffs walk up behind me and handcuff me, they grab me and just put handcuffs up. And I'm like, holy shit. And they go, Mr. Sullivan, you know, we need to talk to you in the back room. You're being detained. And I was like, ooh, ooh. And I, what's going on? They pay, take me and they sit me down. And I'm like, what's going on? And they said, well, we don't really know. We're just waiting for the detective to show up. And at that point, I knew I was on the Secret Service's most wanted list. Like I was on it. And I knew they were looking for me because there were all kinds of articles coming out. But these guys kept calling me Gary Sullivan. But I, for some reason, I remember thinking the FBI was showing up. They kept saying detective. Like I didn't know what the difference between a detective, an officer, and um, an agent was. Like I don't know the difference. I'm waiting for the FBI to show up. Suddenly this guy walks in. He looks like he's in his late 30s or in his early 30s. And he says, hey, I'm a detective with the um, Richland County Sheriff's Department. And I was thinking, okay. And, he, and I was like, oh, my. And he's, he's like, uh, so, Gary, we have, a, we have a problem. I'm like, oh, my God. He's calling me Gary Sullivan. He's calling Mr. Sullivan. And so he says that Wachovia Bank says that I'm committed fraud. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah. And he, and he said, they said that you have several more. You have three mortgages on this property. And I went, is that illegal? And he goes, you know, I don't know. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm walking out of here. So first I turned to him and I go, listen, am I under arrest? And he goes, well, you're being detained. I go, well, I feel like I'm under arrest. And I show him the handcuffs. He goes, well, let me take those off you until we figure out what's going on. Okay. So they take them off me. They get me on the phone with the head of the fraud department for Wachovia. And he's telling me that I've taken out half a million dollars on a house that's worth 230000 And it's what I'm, I'm running a shotgunning scam. And he's telling, we're on, we're sitting there and he's talking to the guy and, and I convince him that I haven't committed any type of a fraud. I went into the bank, the loan officer at the bank lent me $180,000. I told her that wasn't enough. I needed more than that. She said she had a friend that could lend me, get me a second mortgage at another bank. So she, he sent me over there. I went to that bank. She had a friend that could get me a credit line. They got me a credit line. By the way, none of this is true. Every one of the loans that I had was a first mortgage. But you're painting a picture of uh, your, that the bank, that Wycovia is... The bank made a mistake. They made a mistake. And they did a little, a little bit of naughtiness as well to get you the money. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I told I said, listen, maybe the bank committed fraud, but I certainly didn't. I wouldn't know how to do this. <laughs> and I, I remember I pulled out my business card and it said labor on demand. I had a business card and I had a phone number you could call in uh, an office. I said, look, I said, I have no idea what they did. Like, look, I, I work for a labor company. I wouldn't know how to do this if I tried. So the guy from Wachovia knows it's fraud. He's going, it's fraud. It's fraud. Ask him why he's pulling out all the money in cash. He looks at me, he goes, why are you taking out so much money in cash? But keep in mind, Wachovia only knows about their bank account. The one loan. They know one loan. And I also had a bank account there. So they know I'm taking the money out in, in cash. I said, well, listen, I cash checks for the day laborers that work for the company I work for. Check cashing companies charge them like 10%, but I know the checks are good. So I usually cash their checks for nothing because I feel bad for them. They don't have bank accounts, you know, and he's like, oh, I got, is that illegal? He's no, that's not illegal. That's nice. I, I know I, that's a good thing to do. I, yeah, he's a, like, he's sitting there telling the guy from Wachovia, he's a nice guy. You know, I told him, I said, look, something, the bank may have done something wrong, but I haven't done anything. So, and he goes, okay, well, I'm going to have you follow me back to the police station. So he ends up hanging up with the guy from Wachovia. He tells him, look, I don't even know what to charge this guy with. And the truth is, I think you, there's a problem at the bank. The guy at Wachovia is furious, but the detective hangs up with him. And when we go to stand up, he says, Gary, I'm going to need you to follow me back to the police station. And I went, okay, and fill out a police report. And then I'll let you go. And I said, no problem. The two deputies are still standing there. The detective says, this is an, an ID. 
he gave me my ID. Is this is an ID. Do you have a driver's license? And I went, I do, but it's in Nevada. And he goes, oh, that's right. You're from Nevada. And earlier he had told the guy from Wachovia that he'd pulled me through NCIC, which is the national database for criminals, to see all the crimes you've ever been arrested for. So he says, that's right. You're from Nevada. And I realized, holy shit, he pulled my NCIC. He thinks I've been arrested for male prostitution. And as soon as I said that, I, he said that, he looked at me and he glances at the two deputies and they glance at me and they glance at each other and they kind of grin. And I thought, oh my God, they think, they know I'm from Nevada or Gary Sullivan is, and they think I've been arrested for prostitution. And he's like, oh, that's right. That's right. You're from Nevada. He, he hands the ID to one of the deputies and the deputy says, I'll go check, see if he has a valid driver's license. So he lets him leave. He leaves with my ID and he goes and he, into his car and he pulls up Gary Sullivan's driver's license in Nevada, which apparently doesn't have a photo connected to it because he comes back and says, hey, no problem. He's got a valid driver's license. And the detective says, he is, it's valid. And he goes, he does. And he goes, yeah. He says, well, it says he's five foot 10 and I'm five foot six. And they all look at me and I go, well, fellows with a good pair of shoes. And they all start laughing and they go, follow us to the police station. So I go to the police station. I fill out a police report. The chick I was with, Becky, on my way there, she's called me like 30 times since I've been, you know, she's called my other cell phone, which was in my car. So I get it. I'm like, what's up? And she's like, oh, my God. She has your number. I just found out you're number one on the Secret Service's most wanted list. Oh, God. I got bigger problems than that. I said, I was just stopped at the bank. I tell her what's going on. I'm going to the police station. I said, and she goes, oh, my God. She said, uh, don't go in. Don't go in. Well, I, there's no, I can't not go in. Let's just be clear that Matthew Cox is number one on the Secret Service's number one hit list. You're Gary O'Sullivan at this point to the police yeah they have no they have no clue like that they have no clue they, they who they have you know as i was pulling into the parking lot i said worst case scenario i'll be arrested it's gary sullivan i said you can get an attorney to get me out of jail before they figure out who i really am which back then was possible because my identity wasn't in question so they wouldn't necessarily run me immediately anyway she says i'm not getting you out on bond i'm not getting you an attorney because she had the money. She had like $600,000. She says, I'm not giving you, I'm not risking everything I have for you to get you out. She says, if you go in the police station, you're on your own. I was like, holy shit. So I said, well, I, get, I better not get arrested. So I go in, I fill out the police report. And when I fill out the police report, the guy asked me to step into the hallway and wait for him. When I'm in the hallway, my secret service poster was on the wall in the hallway. Like, there's a bunch of other posters, but mine was there. Anyway, he ends up coming out. He's like, you ready to go? I was like, holy shit. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> oh my goodness. he walks me out. I get into the elevator. We go downstairs. He walks out and he says, look, do me a favor. Don't leave the area. There are some questions that have come up. I said, ah, no problem. I'm not going anywhere. I go to two more banks, get out more money. And then I get on the interstate and I leave the area and I, I don't go back. Sorry about the interruption. Coming up on next week's show, we've got a Remembrance Day special with former Chinook crew chick, Liz McConaughey. I thought about it was, if you get to a point where you think it's him or me, it's going to be him. Like if one of us is dying today, it's not going to be me. It's going to be you, mate. And you've got to have that pinch moment where you go, he's about to pull the trigger and we're gonna, he's going to shoot us. Mm. You can't preempt it. You know, there's been various stories about, you know, Americans just hosing people dying and that's not what the british forces did do you think they did do you think the americans did do that they had a different rules of engagement so they were within their legal rights to Team do that america rules of engagement yeah and at one point we had uh 49 alpha which was our rules of engagement got escalated and 49 alpha meant that anyone wearing a black turban who was suspected taliban and north of highway one so highway one is the big road that runs well i say big road it's the only road that runs from the west to the east of southern helmand so basically between Lashkar and Kandahar. But anyone north of Highway 1 wearing a black turban under 49 Alpha, we were allowed to legitimately open fire on if we suspected that they were had lethal intent. So that gave a lot more freedom, even for us as British troops. And some people did use it. I mean, some people, you know, who I worked with were out to get, you know, just out to put rounds down and have a, you know, 
get a kill, mm. have a fight. For me, I was a bit more, you know, you have to live with the consequences of pulling that trigger for the rest of your life. It could just be a guy with his kids on the back of his motorbike and not Taliban. So unless someone was directly shooting at me, I wouldn't have shot back. But there definitely were people that <laughs> escalated it slightly. But again, we, we had the rules of engagement to allow that. So they weren't actually breaking any rules. It's just how your moral compass is. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's tricky. And that's the hardest bit sometimes is you don't want to scare the young crewmen into being scared to pull the trigger. You want them to make that call when they need to make that call. But equally, you've got to let them know that they can't just hose anything down. You know, they've got to be think really careful about it. Can you remember any moments where you made that call and you're like, let's go? And the first time I had to open up with the guns was on a, a routine tasking day. And sometimes the days that caught you out were the, you know, like the really boring ones where you didn't expect anything to happen. And we were just picking up some troops from somewhere southeast of Lashkagar. And the first thing you notice when you're being shot at most of the time, unless it's a rocket in which you hear it, if it's small arms fire, you just either see the sand kicking up around the aircraft because that's usually if they're getting closer, you'll see little pits of sand getting kicked up or you'll hear a really hollow tink, tink, tink on the aircraft because it's so freaking noisy at Chinook. Mm. You don't hear you don't hear the gun firing. You just hear the, the end of the round. Nine times out of ten, people don't even know they've been shot at until they get back to base and you do a, a walk around at the end and there's freaking holes everywhere. But yeah, we got opened up there. So we had to return fire with the M60 that time. And then on a deliberate op, we were going to somewhere southwest of Lashkar this time and had to uh, open up on a Hilux. But there's two Taliban on a Hilux. Just, I mean, we were three ship of Chinooks. It was, it got, we, you know, you couldn't not hear us coming. It was pretty noisy. It was mm. Taliban stronghold. And we ended up having to overshoot and come back in again. And that meant that we'd basically woke them all up they knew where we were coming from and the whole sky lit up like Blackpool illuminations because they were shooting at us. So it was a case of, well, if it's again, if it's him or me, it's him. So had to open up that time. I would have just destroyed the highlights. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's coming up next week. Now back to Matthew Cox. During this time, like, because you're on the run, Matthew Cox has kind of evaporated into thin air. Are you able to speak to your family or your former colleagues or anything like that are you able to ring home or at one point i end up i i end up calling some friends like i would call home to see how my son was doing i would call my mom see how she was doing at one point i called a former colleague just to see how the investigation was going she said that she'd been questioned and they'd questioned everybody and of course everybody was telling them that i was the only person involved and they weren't involved and they're all helping like oh yeah he did this he did that they're all cooperating i end up calling the fbi because she tells me call the fbi they said if i talk to you to get you to call them so i call the fbi and i talked to this, the lead agent her name was candace calderon so i talked to her and she and I basically get into an argument and she, you know, she just, I, I just, she just was continually lying to me about different things, like how much time I was facing. And, you know, I don't want to get into the, the, the whole discussion. It was a long discussion. She was trying uh, to convince you to surrender by giving you false sort of information. Like Correct. To- she was trying to tell me I could get like five or six years and cooperate and could get out in a few years or whatever. And, and that wasn't true. Like that was not true for, it was true for one jurisdiction at this point. I had, committed fraud in multiple, like three or four different jurisdictions. Like you, she's trying to tell me for all of them, but I, she finally ends up admitting that it's just for one. So I'm looking at like seven years for, I'm looking at seven years for just one fraud. You know, she doesn't realize I just stole 11 and almost 11 and a half million dollars. Well, really almost $2 million at this point, an additional 2 million. So she doesn't know that. And, and so, I mean, I know I'm in trouble. I remember she kept saying, um, eventually we're going to catch you, sweetie. Eventually we'll catch you. And I said, I remember I said, well, what's taking you so long? And she goes, well, we, we, we're nine. She goes, we're 90% sure of where you are. And I said, listen, only a hundred percent counts. Oh. And she, she was like, you, you are a cocky fucker. You know, she was, so you funny. were though, you were a cocky fucker. I was, but she was really, really an asshole. She really was a jerk about the whole thing. She could have been, you know, having dealt with so many FBI officers and, and agents she was such a hard ass. I didn't want to deal with her, you know, and I didn't trust her. It was better just to be honest. I would have trusted her if she'd just been honest. But when I started catching her lie after lie, it became like, okay, you know what? I, now I don't believe anything you're saying. So I went to Nashville in Tennessee. I started over again there as a Joseph Carter. 
Well, first, when I went back, first, what happened was I got into an argument with that chick, the chick Becky I was with, and I took off and I left her with like almost all the money. Like I got like, she gave me like, I got like half, like, I got like a hundred thousand dollars and she kept like $500,000. And I drove back to South Carolina. When I got to Charlotte, South Carolina, I retrieved my car and I went into a Starbucks. And when I went to the Starbucks, there were two people from my apartment complex there and they kept looking at me weird. Like they were, they are employees. And at one point, one of the people took off, like she left out the back. And what I didn't know was that the U.S. Marshals were actually at the apartment complex looking for me at that moment. So she ran in and told them this, Matt Cox, the guy is in the Starbucks. So by the time they start coming over there and they come running, I'm in my car. I was in my car and I was starting to pull out and I hear the other employee was screaming and he's pointing at me saying, he's right here. He's right here. And I look in the rearview mirror and I see the two marshals running at me, running at my car from behind. And then I just, i hit the gas. And I take off. Like, I mean, like that was, that was unnerving. At that point, I have no IDs. I only have a hundred thousand dollars. I went and surveyed several more homeless people, like literally a mile or two down the street. While you were right, right after the marshals chased me, I literally stopped at a homeless facility two or three miles down the street. And well, I'm freaking out, but I also need the ID. So, but you've got a hundred k. You could find some homeless shelters in the next city, couldn't you? I know, but I was driving by and I knew where the and I saw these guys standing out there by themselves, and I was like, "Fuck!" So I swung by, asked. They gave me their information real quick. I jumped in my car. I drove straight to Nashville, and I'm really within about two weeks in Nashville. I had a new driver's license, a new car, an apartment. And I then took my other vehicle, drove back to Charlotte and left the car in long-term parking, flew back to Nashville, started my life over there, started buying a bunch of uh, houses and started the whole process over again. I borrowed $2.5 million in Nashville. (laughs) And then I was dating this girl in Nashville. Amanda. Amanda. And Katrina. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that really was at the very end. And that's really what got me messed up was Dateline NBC News was about to come out. First of all, there was a Fortune magazine had done an article on me and Bloomberg had done a couple articles on me. And the girl that I originally left with, Becky, had gotten caught. So that sparked a whole nother round of articles. And then Dateline was going to do was coming out with a one hour special. And Amanda figured out who I was and she saw that it was coming out. And so I knew I was going to be on TV all over the country. And there's just no way for me to hide from that. So I was going to leave and I was actually going to go to Australia because Australia at the time would let you go to Australia. And if you showed up there with like a business plan and a couple hundred thousand dollars or like a hundred, it wasn't even much, like a hundred thousand dollars or something, a business plan, they would let you become a permanent resident alien. Couldn't vote and you couldn't get a job, but you could buy property there and you could live there and you could open a business there. So I can open a business and hire Aussies, but I can't, I can't get a job, right. but I'm going to show up with millions. At this point, I've gotten a couple million. So as I'm pulling money out in cash, I have a new, I have a clean fake identity. I have a, I have a passport, everything. And as I'm pulling out money in cash, Amanda tells Trina who I am. And Trina was a girl that Amanda and I were both seeing. So Amanda's living with me, but Trina comes over and stays a night, you know, a couple nights a week. Because Amanda and Katrina were kind of dating each other as well, weren't they? Yeah, we were all kind of dating. But Amanda was my girlfriend. Amanda ends up confiding in Trina who I am and what I'm doing. And Trina calls the Secret Service and she turns me in. And so the Secret Service, she gets a reward of like 10 grand or something. They stake out my house for about three days. And then one day when I come home, they arrest me. Three years on the run. Yeah, three years. I was on the run three years. Jeez. And you get sentenced to 26 years in prison. Yeah. 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 But while I was in there, I wrote an ethics and fraud course for the government to help train mortgage brokers. Kind of like that guy on um, Catch Me If You Can. Right. Kind of. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You're thinking Frank Abagnale. That's it. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. So that, and I cooperated with several articles where uh, I spoke with more uh, newspapers. And I was also interviewed by American Greed and Dateline, which the government wanted me to do. So you, how, how many years did you end up spending in prison? Almost uh, 13 years, almost 13 years. Fucking hell. 
God, it's yeah. a long time. It's a big chunk of your life. Do you think it was all worth it or? No, it definitely wasn't worth it. I love these guys. We're like, well, it made me the person I am today and I don't regret it. Fuck that. I regret doing all of it. I, you know, I wish I, I wish I just gotten a fucking regular job and been a regular person and taught my son's little league and had a regular life and just been a regular Joe. Do you miss it though? Miss the committing fraud part of it? I miss committing fraud every single day. Really? I loved, I loved committing fraud. I loved the feeling. I loved getting away with it. You know, people say like when you're on the run, you know, when you get, when you got caught, you must've been relieved. I wasn't relieved at all. I was furious. I was upset. I, I loved being on the run. Being on the run was like part of the, probably one of the best parts of my entire life. Like, I don't know who these guys are that said, you know, keep in mind, I wasn't on the run. It wasn't like I was broke living in the streets. I mean, I'm living in a half a million dollar apartment in downtown Charlotte or, you know, in Nashville or wherever I was living. I mean, I'm driving, I'm driving sports cars. I'm traveling the entire world. I have passports. I mean, I'm living like James Bond. I wasn't scared, probably gotten six or seven tickets in different people's names. I've gone to traffic school as other people just to keep from not losing their license. I got so many tickets in their names. I mean, so it's not like I was, you know, it's not like I was looking over my shoulder when I got, I got robbed one time. Like we had a, uh, we had like a, a home invasion. I called the police. Like I'm calling the police. It's not even me. I'm com- it's completely fake. Like I, I've got a, I got a driver's license, everything. I'm calling the police. Like I have interact, had interaction with law enforcement. I'm going through passport control. I'm arguing with bank officials. Like I'm not scared when I walk in a bank and know I'm committing fraud. I'm ready to argue. Because I know what they can check and what they can't, what they know and what they don't know. And yeah, is it suspicious? But it doesn't mean it's fraud. If I have a good story and I have the documents, I'm getting the loan. Listen, there is no better feeling in the world than walking into a bank, handing them all fraudulent documents, having them call you Mr. Black, and then handing you a check for $250,000 and thanking you for ripping them off. I mean, that's just like the best. You feel like 007. You feel like James Bond. It's the best feeling in the world. And I mean, I know I'm supposed to say it's horrible and my, the guilt is killing me and I can't sleep at night. But the truth is I sleep like a baby. <laughs> I slept like a baby then. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You, you've justified everything you've done in your mind almost, haven't you? I don't know. I'm not saying it's okay. I, look, I'm not saying I'm not a scumbag. I'm just saying I'm, I'm okay with being a scumbag. I'm not, I'm not apologize, running around apologize. Did, you know, if you said, oh, did you, what you did was, was it wrong? Of course it was wrong. Like I got these guys that say, oh, it was the banks. Fuck the banks. Nobody cares. Look, I still committed fraud. It's still a scumbag move. Yeah. It's fraud. It's against the law. So for me to sit here and say, no, it's justified because I'm really a good guy. I'm not a good guy. What I was doing wasn't a good thing. I'm not a good person. That's not something that you do. If that's how you want to sleep at night, that's fine. But I don't have to justify that to myself. I know what I was doing was fucked up. It was scummy. It was a scumbag thing to do, but I'm okay with it. Are you still a scumbag? No, I just, I try Now I just try and do the right thing. And it's funny too, because people watch like, you know, like they watch my YouTube channel, they watch my interviews and they'll tell me like, oh, you're inspirational. I haven't tried to do one inspirational thing in my entire life ever. Yeah, but you, they'll go, but you're, you've kind of reset your life and you're doing the right thing now. I'm just trying to live my life. Mm. Like I'm writing books. I paint. I do interviews. I do commercials. I, I do what comes my way. And I just try and be a decent person. If that's inspirational, I mean, I, I guess so. I'm not trying to do anything inspirational. I'm not feeding the homeless or anything. You don't see, you're not going to see me at a soup kitchen. You've got a YouTube channel now, don't you? It's called uh, it's called uh, Matthew Cox Inside True Crime, and then of course my memoir is Shark in the Housing Pool. Great, and book. you know you you've read it. It's insane. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like we've literally covered the smallest part of it, and the other true crime books that you've written. I've written a bunch of books. If you look up, you know Matt Cox True Crime, there's going to be a ton of stuff. There was an article that was done about me in uh, God Forbes magazine and the Atlantic. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, 
about being a true crime writer. So I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing now is working on getting these things turned into uh, documentaries. And hopefully someday something gets made into a series. And I've optioned the film rights for several books. Oh, well, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Really, really appreciated it. And you um, just being so candid about your story. It was awesome. No problem. And thank you very much for listening. The best thing you can do to support the show is to share the podcast with your mates and help us grow. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.